Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Yana Byers, and I'm here today with Professor Carol Diehouse, Professor Emerita of History at the University of Sussex. She's the author of numerous articles relating to women and higher education, as well as the monographs Girl Trouble, Panic and Progress in the History of Young Women, 2013, to that party. 2013 said books and glamour women history and feminism also from said books in 2010 and then two earlier publications from rutledge uh, students a gendered history and no distinction of sex women in british universities 1870 to 1939 hello carol hello yana so how are you today are you in sussex i am in a very cold sussex um but it's it's sunny <laughs> so i'm not complaining excellent wonderful um all right so um, I see a pretty clear and steady progression from the 1995 No Distinction of Sex straight through to heartthrobs, but that might not be clear to uh, everyone in our audience. So would you like to comment on how this, how your latest work follows the trajectory of your earlier work? Yes. Well, I'm a feminist historian, fairly obviously, and I've spent most of my life in universities writing academic and hopefully scholarly books. <laughs> And those books may, in the main, have focused on um, a history of women in education and women in universities, those kinds of subjects, although I'm broadly interested in most aspects of modern British women's history. But about 10 years ago, I thought, hmm, I'd quite like to try and write books that appeal to a, a bigger audience that weren't just intended for scholarly readers and, and that would you know, chance their arm a bit more and look at subjects which were perhaps a bit untried. (laughs) So the book on glamour is subtitled um, Women and Feminism, Women History Feminism. But it's an attempt to do something quite different and to look at, well, whether glamour is oppressive to women, whether it's always been oppressive to women. It was also an attempt, you know, uh, an opportunity to do fun stuff like look at vintage clothes stores and go around perfume museums and look at textile and clothing museums yeah. and the history of makeup and stuff like that. So all that kind of material culture <laughs> of femininity, which I wanted to look at as a feminist and wasn't prepared, I think, to see as just oppressive, as just putting women down and turning them into objects. So Glamour um, was a new venture and I really enjoyed writing it. and I found it very intellectually stimulating to think about the ways in which glamour had been sometimes enabling for women. If you look at, you know, the film stars of the 1930s, they're very powerful women. They're not exactly oppressed or totally subjects of the ma- objects of the male gaze, you know. Um, so I wanted to do something different. And then that led on to the book on girl trouble, which was a, an attempt to do a very broad focus book, looking at whether women had benefited or been reduced by modern history. And it sort of had to take on a lot of moral panics around girlhood, the, you know, from the white slave 
the alleged white slave traffic of the 1900s of the suffrage period, right the way through to ladettes and and um, you know female chauvinist pigs and so on, allegedly um, in, in the 1990s. So I, I, I wanted to do a, a something again that would be very broad. I mean, in universities, you tend to focus on smaller scholarly things. And I just wanted to be a bit more swashbuckling. <laughs> and if I want, if I should say that, I, I oh, God, yeah. heartthrobs was, it, I mean, that was interesting. To, I mean, when I gave, when I gave um, book talks on glamour, a lot of gay men said, why aren't you looking at male glamour? And, you know, I, I thought you're right. I mean, I touched in glamour on the glamour of say RAF pilots in those gorgeous pale blue uniforms you know with silver wings on their enormous kind of glamour uh, associated with airline pilots in the earlier part of the century but I didn't fully look at male glamour um and I was thinking a bit about that and then I was thinking I mean the real takeoff point for the book on heartthrobs was John Burgess um ways of seeing you know John Burgett the art critic who did a a, a very well received tv series Mm -hmm. but he also did a book called ways of seeing which was published I think about 1972 and he said things which became central to the sort of feminist um way of thinking about things and feminist canon if you like almost he said that um men look at women and women see themselves through the eyes of men and that idea that women have traditionally been the objects of the male gaze and can only see themselves as objectified through the eyes of men bothered me. Um, I mean, it has its virtues. It's a really helpful way of looking at things, but it's not the whole story. And I thought, what if we reverse that and look at how women look at men? Because you don't actually have to spend very long in the company of other women, do you, to know that they talk about men quite effusively? And, and so I thought, well, what, what happens is often, yes, guess, in many yeah. ways. Um, and I thought, well, what happens if you look historically at that? You look at how women have been able to talk about men in what kinds of areas they've talked about men and how. Um, and that sort of gets you thinking about the nature of female desire and whether that is culturally constructed or something innate, you know. And that's what Heartthrobs is really about. It's an attempt to look at changing fashions in men, the changing to look at the the way desirable masculinity has changed since, say, the late 18th century. That makes sense. (laughs) Um, There is something that is some kind of inadvertently feminist, just simply subjecting, or perhaps directly pointedly feminist, in subjecting um, men to the female gaze and looking at how that's been how that's been done it's it's really delightful it's a great idea um and it's so much fun so it's such a fun book um so one of the things that really (laughs) really struck me uh with looking at it was how much fun it must have been to do the research for this although i'm thinking maybe purses and bags might have been even cooler but so would you like to talk to me (laughs) i mean it wasn't just an opportunity to look at sort of sexy men although that was one of the sort of fringe benefits wasn't it to go look at look at men on the cinema um it certainly didn't hurt Um, did it no the research was enormously fun because in looking at men themselves i mean i i mainly well i i look look at popular fiction a lot um, and I look at film obviously massively and um, particularly the early years of cinema when Rudolph Valentino really 
established himself as the first sort of massive heartthrob on screen. I mean, before that, you have heartthrobs like Byron or List, you know, who allegedly had women swooning. Well, um, List had women collecting his cigar stubs and sticking them down their fronts, didn't he, and swooning because they... I mean, he's often thought of as one of the first kind of major heartthrobs in history. Byron had women, you know, besotted and ostensibly well-behaved middle-class women writing to him, you know, offering to meet him under the bushes in Hyde Park and stuff like that. I mean, it was, again, a phenomenon. But but with Rudolf Valentino, you get the first massive screen heartthrob. And it's so interesting because men hated him. Um, You know, he was denounced roundly in America for being puffy and not being white and waspish and and, and so on. And I think men were very shocked by the fact that, that women, you know, went crazy about him. And what intriguing about that is, in a sense, his. I mean, he's also like there, there's an ethnicity issue there as well, right? He's not proper. Absolutely, he's not proper at all. He's um, he's a ladies' man, and that phrase in itself is fascinating, isn't it? Because ladies' man usually means, um, you know, not masculine enough, not a proper red blood male. But of course, you know, that raises questions about whether women always wanted red blooded males in the way that men. Feel. They did. And when I think back about Rudolf Valentino, I mean, he did, in a sense, reshape ideals of masculinity because although he caused all this trouble, I mean, because he was so successful with women, um, he sort of makes men rethink fashions and you find the fashion for sort of, you know, slicked back hair becomes fairly universal and and you know, <laughs> there's a brand of condoms which you can still find advertised on the on the web called Shake Condoms. You know, which were <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, oh. kind of. Cap- I mean, at the time they were manufactured, you can still find old ones if you Google them. <laughs> and um, oh my god, <laughs> well, that's amazing! They were packaged anyway. I'm not sure about the genuine articles, but what I mean was that the condoms were. Out- as being shape condoms because in a sense Rudolf Valentino had redefined masculinity and the shake with all the associations of of, that came from you know the very uh, powerful way he enacted that in the in the film The Shake you know which was based on E.M. Hull's novel but um, was a a fantastic success sort of reshapes masculinity It, it challenges people to rethink what desirable masculinity is So that way, women affect ideals of masculinity through their consumerism, you know. Sure, that's That's interesting. Yeah, I'm sure there's an article to be be written about the Sheikh versus the Trojan condom. (laughs) Convinced that would make it someone else's job. Oh, that's really fun. Well, you also got to, well, you watched a lot of films and read a lot of books too, right? Yes. Um, The kind of things, the kind of books you're supposed to feel guilty about reading too. Well, that was it. I mean, when I was at school, I didn't get to read stuff that that the teachers disapproved of, like, you know, Catherine Windsor's Forever Amber. I mean, (laughs) other people read those. (laughs) And, um, and, you know, I was supposed to be a sort of scholarly girl and, and didn't, 
you know, to do that. But um, in my in my dotage, as it were, I was able to read all this stuff I missed out on as a young girl because I was so serious minded and to treat it academically, um, you yes. know, because that it, it, is, it is fun. And I really delved down into this, what you might call the pond life of popular literature. You know? <laughs> Because what's interesting, um, if you're a social and cultural historian, is the impact that these texts had. Um, for instance, when I started writing Heartthrobs, um, somebody said to me, or well, a friend of mine who's a writer called Imogen Robertson, she said, she said, have you you will you'll obviously look at Charles Garvis? And I said, Who? <laughs> she said, Garvis, have you not seen this book? <laughs> embarrassed right. after, you know, 30 years of teaching social history and kind of popular literature and stuff. I thought, no, I haven't. So I started to look up Charles Garvis, and he was massively, massively, massively popular. I mean, he made a fortune out of his popular writing, which was either under his own name or under a, a sort of female pseudonym, but they were romances and they 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 have masses to say about what women want in men um and the fact that they sold so prolifically means that he hit a nerve so i was able to kind of read all this kind of thing and and then it, it gets you to rethink i've never heard of this man now i have an assignment for later um, um not brilliant Charles Garvis. Oh, that's brilliant. G-A-R-V-I-C. Oh, right. oh, brilliant. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, what what do you would you tell me is your overall argument? What what if I have a t- one take up? What is it? Ah, okay. The, what I think was my central sort of theme is that, and it was something I discovered in the in the course of doing the book, is that fashions in masculinity have to do with. Um, women's social position at any particular time. You see, if you look on the surface of it, I, when I started, I thought, well, mm, okay, so what kinds of blokes appear massively in the literature, say, at the end of the 19th century? And hardly surprisingly, they're sort of imperial adventurers and, you know, kind of soldiers and things like that. And you can understand all that. And then, by the, as we mentioned earlier, you know, the, the RAF pilot comes in, in in the 20s and 30s and so on as, as a big thing. And then doctors in the 1950s, you know, the... the, the um, popularity of hospital romances, you know, doctor meets nurse and nurse. Uh, it's just huge. I mean, Mills and Boo couldn't find enough authors to write hospital romances in the 50s. So at some level, you, you think, oh, yeah, well, you know, what it is about sexy men is that they reflect the fashions of the time. And then you think, well, that's it's not all that, is it? You know, there's something more going on. And I think I decided in the course of writing that what if the more that is going on is what's happening to women at any particular time. So that, for instance, the fashion for Arab sheikhs, you know, which comes around the Valentino period and stays, if you look at girls' magazines through the 30s, there's just no shortage of, you know, white Rajah stories or, you know, desert desert princes who carry women off to their tents, as Rudolf Valentino did in, in The Sheikh, you know. I mean, it's it sticks and sticks at a fantasy level. So, um, I think what I found more interesting is how you can answer the question of how changes in women's social position lead to fashions for different kinds of men. Um, that's the main argument of the book, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's um, sounds good. <laughs> I like it. Uh, so you touched on several. Oh, I'm sorry. sorry? Do you want me to say a bit more about that? 
It's just, uh, well, a bit more about that is that as women become consumers, they can express their desires. So for it's the fact that they consume cheap romantic fiction, um, you know, from the Mills and Boom period on, really, or the, the circulating libraries on um, into, well, up until the present day. Um, although a lot of it's web-based now, but you know, it, it's the fact that they become consumers. I mean, it's the women who go to cinemas. Some women went allegedly two or three times a week when cinema was at its height of fashion. Um, and it's so it's because women's behaviour changes as consumers that certain kinds of masculinity become fashionable because they can express it. And then I think the way you understand doctors in the 50s is that it's a little bit of a of a kind of backwards trend because after the Second World War, there was a sort of back to the home glorifying domesticity sort of movement. And if you think about, you know, you think about young women, if you're going to choose a bloke to marry and, you know, what do you go for? You want to go for somebody with prospects. You want to go for somebody maybe who's stable, who's professionally got good status, who's going to be a stable, reassuring sort of presence through a long life. And who better than to marry a young doctor? <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, respectable, smart. Yeah, and it was a good bet to marry a doctor. And that's why I think you get all those doctor romances and the doctor movies at that time, you know. So I think behind every fashion in masculinity, there's something altering in women's social position. And it was that relationship, which I think becomes the main theme of the book, really. Right. Um, sure. And as women are able to express that as consumers, and there's a response there. <clears throat> oh, fantastic. So there's a few, uh, if you, the book is organized according to uh, some of the archetypes, really, I think we can call them, right? And uh, I, w- I was wondering if you would like to talk about a few of those, particularly, I love the chapter Once Upon a Dream. <laughs> oh, that's about the Prince Charming, isn't it? Is it, is it? Um, yeah, I love that. And it takes me back to that countless hours I spent with Disney movies and oh, folk, yeah. like fairy tales. Yeah. Oh, I was a oh, sucker sorry. for that. <laughs> Once Upon a Dream, yes. Well, that's um, that obviously immediately makes you think of Disney. And the, the thing about that chapter, I kind of forget what I put in it now. But, um, I got <laughs> very much the kind of this sort of Prince Charming archetype, you know, which which is obviously in Cinderella, but gets extended very much with, I think if you look at the, the pictures in the book, there's a wonderful one of Rudolf Valentino's Monsieur Beaucaire, <laughs> um, having a sort of wet shirt moment almost, you know, instead of his gold braid and his, and his ruffles, you know, you suddenly see him with a naked torso and, and yet he's still got his powdered wig on, you know. Um, actually, that <laughs> um, I didn't want to be caught without that. <laughs> <laughs> the construction of the Prince Charming, and you know, there, there are romantic novelists from Barbara Cartland um, to Georgette Hare, who I think is brilliant, by the way. I mean, that was Georgette Hare was somebody else I never read at school because she was frowned upon um, by you know our very scholarly teachers. <laughs> we went to a very right, academic schools, and you just didn't read this stuff. But boy, do I read it these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it helps so much, and actually, Georgia Hare is extremely witty and and um, and a very good read. Um, and I would, oh, not, you know, she's not the bottom of the pond when we look at pond life literature. But I do look at pond life literature. <laughs> you know, um, what, what I 
what I was going to say was was just that. Um, Oh, I've almost forgotten. <laughs> Hang on, it'll come back, it'll come back. Oh, yes, um, the contempt with which the literary establishment has often um, loaded its remarks against women. I mean, for, if you look at Q.D. Leavis, who was married to F.R. Leavis, you know, and was a critic, obviously, um, she sneers at what she calls typists' romances um, or, you know, mill girls' romances. And those kinds of denunciations, which are, are everywhere, if you look at 20, the history of 20th century literature, they carry a sort of double burden of contempt, don't they? I mean, it's contempt for what women like to read on one hand, but it's also contempt for working class women. It's a kind of class snobbery, because when you talk about a mill girl or a typist or a, you know, or a servant girl, you, you're kind of putting them down for their class as well as their gender. And I think, you know, that we can learn a great deal as social historians from examining the fantasies of young working class women. Oh, God. yeah, certainly. I mean, what's what's important and the idea as well, just the reminder that um, the, the dream is to be kind of carried away. Right? You have this life that's not too pleasant and then you've been carried off and you, by your prince, you know, this perfect prince charming <laughs> yes we probably don't have well, so many know, princes these days <laughs> you know okay though do you know uh, i don't know how much this plays but there's a channel in the u.s called the Hall- the hallmark channel uh-huh. and it is just lady television and it's mi- it's mocked relentlessly but um starting sometime in mid-november they start playing these christmas movies Mm-hmm. And they're the exact same thing. And you're kind of like admitting that you like them. It's You admit to a guilty pleasure. But I just, just this morning as I was leaving my house, I saw an ad for the third Christmas Prince movies. Mm-hmm. Like there was the Christmas Prince and then the Royal Wedding. And now it's she's having a baby. And it's some like American, not too interesting human who goes to a fictional car- kingdom, meets a prince and they fall in love. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it. He, he's dashing. I mean, this, this is still I, I there's think, a lot of power to that. Still, well, that's because so many women are fairly powerless. I think. I mean, I don't think that's the entire story, but I think one of the one of the ways we can understand the pull of this is that if you've got a kind of fairly boring, mundane, or even poverty struck and, and grim existence, then you know, dreams of transformation are what keep you going, aren't they? Um, you, again and again, it's kind of scattered literature and it's hard to kind of pull together. But I try, obviously, after you've written the book, other stuff comes up. And I, I came across um, just one of those sort of slim autobiographical, you know, myself when young texts not so long ago, um, written by a woman called Joyce Story, who lived in Bristol. And she has a passage about how miserable she was in elementary school in the in the 1930s and she said she used to sit in the playground and just fantasize that Rudolf Valentino or somebody like him was coming on a big white horse and he would carry her off you know and make her life wonderful and this notion that you can be transported and your life can be transformed is a very powerful um, fantasy and a form of consolation for people who are finding life hard work mm-hmm. you know, yeah I mean I I think that 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 
it's it's getting the hold is getting less, isn't it? Because you know, if you compare the early Disney movies to the later ones, if you compare Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, and Cinderella, for instance, with say Moana and um, and Frozen One, you can see that things have changed quite massively. Um, I mean, they're awfully wet those early Disney heroines. <laughs> get carried off by princes they really are hopeless aren't they (laughs) no personality they're just they're these little dresses the princes don't have much personality either do they i mean in a sense they're ciphers because all you all you need to do is gesture in the direction of you know servant girl is transformed by fairy godmother and prince carries her away and we all know i mean you know how you probably could express the whole fantasy in about you know six words <laughs> sure <laughs> absolutely <it's> so familiar <laughs> but i'm not sure it's got so much hold today you know because princesses have got rather more about them now <laughs> Imagine Megan having that. Well, maybe she did have that fantasy. Who knows? You know, she's too. You know, they have too much personality these days, and I think that's a good thing. It doesn't stop the fantasy, but it does mean it does mean you probably check your own fantasies a bit, don't you? Yeah, I suppose. And there, I mean, just it is true that women have considerably more opportunities than ever. So. You know, there's kind of, I, I teach, as you know, I'm teaching 20 year olds and they talk about being their own prince, like making their Good own life. Them. Yeah, Good absolutely. for them. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So, it, uh, it doesn't see though. We'd all like life to be perfect. We'd all like, to, you know, I mean, the thing is that you could be, st- you know, if somebody carries you off and puts you in their castle. I mean, you'd get pretty bored soon, wouldn't you? <laughs> Definitely. Absolutely. I'm like, is there, there's, there's probably not even theatre. That sounds like no fun. <laughs> no, and I, I really, really love clothes. But I mean, there's only, you can't spend your entire life. <laughs> Just changing from dress to dress. No. Just getting dressed up, you know. You would no, get terribly boring. Terribly bored. Okay. So I would like to ask, and my final important, super important question, who's your favorite of the heartthrobs? Ah! <laughs> People always ask that. I probably um I probably asked to answer differently each time. Um when I was growing up I had a thing about Rudolf Nureyev. <laughs> I, I think that <laughs> I think it was just that masculine grace. I mean, when you see him in Corsair pirouetting across the stage. But that's interesting too, isn't it? That, um, that oh dear, sorry. This, um, that's interesting too because um, women do like male dancers and that's a challenge to a lot of conventional ideas of masculinity. There's something about, you know, grace and, and expression um, that hasn't always sat easily with masculinity, but it's something women often go for. Hmm. That's all right. That's fascinating. What fun. Oh, wonderful. I love this book. Um, I had so much fun reading it. I, these interviews are funny. Um, I, and I just, it's a joy. I get to read all kinds of different fun stuff. And so I uh, cannot recommend it enough. Uh, did you have fun writing it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, uh, what's next? 
Ah, well, <laughs> I I think I might sort of develop this a bit further to to um, to actually look at the transition from Cinderella to Frozen, looking at. Um, uh, the different patternings of love lives, not so much, you know, men that one fantasizes about, but uh, that women have fantasized about historically, but the shifts in sort of um, what has been desired in terms of relationships with men and, and family structures and, and so on. A, a sort of broad social history of women from 1950 to um, up to 2013, because I think um, Frozen 1 will be my cutoff point. I have seen Frozen 2, but, <laughs> but I think it was Frozen 1 that is the um, the turning point. I, uh, I think uh, I, that, that, sounds, that sounds right. I mean, like, obviously, you're the expert on this one. Um, but I think, I mean, that just sits properly. And what a fun thing to think about, too. Like, the Cinderella is boring. She's so good. A bit different from British versions, actually. You know, that's what yeah, that is also that. true. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, I mean, the older folk tales are a whole nother matter. But that's that's fascinating. Well, that's great. So thank you very much. I've spent uh, I've taken up quite enough of your time. So uh, um, uh, we'll just close. Is there anything else that I desperately need to know? No, thank you for talking to me, Yana. I, I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much, Carol. It was great. Mm-hmm.